And I guess the real question then is, uh, who's getting the candied yams? What are the candied yams in this analogy? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rabbit hole that's way too far, man. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 77. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're reflecting on our series on cultural identity. It's a series that began on May 12th with episode 68 and runs through July 7th with episode 76. We covered quite a bit of ground. And what we want to do today is just kind of reflect on some of the key takeaways that that we all had. Joining me to do that, we have Grace Sangalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, and Dr. Chris Porter. Yeah, one of the, the goals that we had for this series was really to emphasize that there's no such thing as an unhyphenated theology or unhyphenated interpretation, that we all have unique particularities and backgrounds that inform the work that we do when we pick up our Bibles and, and try to read it. And I think this series really exemplified that in a number of really, really helpful ways. And that dynamic is not strictly at the level of like race and ethnicity. It's also at the, the level of gender. And one of the episodes that I've been thinking about the last couple of days is actually the episode by Dr. Rob Stegman on multiple masculinities, because I've been listening to Christianity Today's uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and all of that discussion about Mark Driscoll's, you know, kind of emphasis on this sort of like wild masculinity, just making me think a lot about that kind of intersectional dynamic of how gender factors into those particularities of how we approach scripture as well, in addition to how that may have been co-opted by a particular kind of American ethos that Mark Driscoll was inhabiting. What were some key takeaways, key thoughts that you all had about this series? So I think something that stood out to me is the episode um, with Dr. William James Jennings, and he talks about his book, um, After Whiteness, and also um, he talks about how he, like, introduces um, his book in finding himself in fragments, and I think that really stood out to me because I think for people of color and for marginalized people, a lot of times because their stories are you know on the fringe or outskirts like they're not the centered story um a lot of times we do have to find like our stories in those bits and pieces um and even thinking about doing theology um in this way it's kind of more you know looking at those like particularities because there is no like universal way of doing theology. Um, I'm also reading this book called um, Coming Full Circle, The Process of Decolonization Among Post-1965 Filipino Americans by um, Lenny Mendoza Strobel. And um, she also talks about how she tries to like pick up the different pieces and fragments of the Filipino story um, to try to like make this whole story 
throughout it. So I think just even thinking about all of the different guests that we had on this series and listening to all their different stories and the ways um, that they are doing theology, I think was just really interesting to see um, just all the different perspectives um, and the ways of doing theology and, and how more voices need to be heard. So that's something that um, initially comes to mind when thinking about the series. I really loved it. Yeah, I just like, it was so rich for me. And I think it's just important to be, for people to be aware that everyone is doing theology in this way, that they're all coming from a particular like place, location, culture, gender, and that we need to bring that awareness to the forefront, you know, and to be honest about that while we're doing this work. Grace, I appreciate it. Your your thoughts there. I think one thing I, I gleaned from as, as we went through these conversations is that there really isn't one seat for theology. And, and a lot of times in the conversation, it seems that uh, one group or one area is trying to take the chief seat versus really thinking of our theological discourse as a table that we all feast from. Um, and each of us contribute to that table in a way that actually makes the meal um, that much richer and fuller. I think particularly in the West, uh, we struggle with this exceptionalism creeping into our like theological uh, framework. Um, that kind of American exceptionalism is also heightened into this like Western exceptionalism where the perspectives of our brothers and sisters in, in other cultures who are, have not been influenced by other areas of, of theological scholarship find it somewhat confounding that their voice is not there. So I think it's been wonderful to have um, these moments where we reposition what uh, what scholarship looks like. I think it, I'm recently thinking of, of Willie Jennings as well in the sense of how um, some cultural paradigms frame how we view uh, theology in light of our practice. So I, I remember him mentioning in the evangelical world talking about property and land and how if we actually peel back those layers, uh, then we have an even more questionable positioning of like, how much do I hold on to my theology in light of some of the things that I have to face? And every culture confronts that. Um, but uh, each, each frame and lens in which we look at theology in terms of those challenges changes by by the frameworks in the worlds in which we've lived in. Um, so it's good to sit at the table amongst others and see uh, that we are one of the others as well. Um, if you just turn the page and sit on the opposite side, um, we need to glean from each other uh, in a way that makes, makes our scholarship much, uh, much more enriching than it actually is. I love that image of the table that we all feast at. It makes me think that it's a kind of potluck. You know, one of the things that I think hopefully comes through in this series is that all of these discussions are not like silos. You know, it's not like, oh, here's what here's what's going on in Latin American theology among Latin Americans. And it's just kind of like closed off. It's this niche thing, but, but actually it's, it's meant to be something that we can all benefit from and learn from those who aren't Latin Americans might especially need to hear these insights and, and realize the blind spots that they have because of their particularities. Yeah. And I, I think that imagery of the table, um, perhaps the, the Thanksgiving table we might uh, talk about is actually so apt. But it's interesting because I think some of the moves that are made in 
this discussion, uh, especially when it is trying to be controlled by by people, is to to hive off subtables, almost like the the kids' table at Thanksgiving. You know, you have this part of the kids' table, and we know uh, that that is uh, the hyphenated group. You know, we we hive off those kids over there who are this. You know, the primary school or the the younger boys table and that's on the other side from the younger girls table because they'll fight over their food otherwise and so they need to be separated but the the interesting part of that is that it's it's not about the kids who are there choosing to go into those groups it's the parents who are who are imposing that upon their kids and it's an awkward analogy but i think often this is what happens in our discourse around theology is that uh, there is that hyphenation of, uh, I think it was Je- uh, Her Oak who talked about um, the hyphenation of Asian American biblical interpretation. And you're doing this sort of work. So the hegemony says that's Asian American. Therefore, at SBL, you have to go over and do this work over in that group room over there. But because, you know, as, a, as an Asian Australian, do I fit in that group? I'm Asian, but I'm not American. And so I go to that group and, and, and it's an awkward fit. I mean, and I often fit better in other groups and, and it's interesting because it's not, it doesn't prioritize where the, the kids want to go, if you like, uh, where the theology that is being done actually locates itself, but it's the locating of that theology by the people who uh, want to maintain a status quo or maintain a hegemony about the theology, uh, and the and the and critically, I think the way it's being discussed, uh, and so I think that that was part of the, my take home was just the robust complexity of what we've got to deal with, but also that impetus that we need to be doing theology on its own terms, not on the terms of a control or power uh, dichotomy or, or or construct there. The kids' table is the perfect extension of this analogy. Yeah, I love that analogy. Um, yeah, the table and the potluck. Well, I'm all about food, so I'm like all for that and just feasting, you know, on this goodness of theology. Um, I, I love it. And then another question that, that I have, just to push this, you know, like analogy further, is like who is actually inviting people to the table? You know, um, I think that's a huge part of this conversation, too, is that um, are the kids even allowed to eat at the table? You know, are they even present during the feast? Um, So, you know, making sure that we like make room for the various perspectives at the table, I think, is so important. And, um, you know, being like a Filipino American, like hospitality is a huge value for Filipinos. Um, So I really love this analogy, too, because I think like that's one of our strengths is we're really good at like making space for people and, you know, bringing people together at the table. Um, And so, um, yeah, I think just being able to extend that hospitality to others, um, I think is so important, you know, to be able to welcome people and then make sure that they actually feel like, you know, they're part of the conversation, um, that they have a space for themselves there, um, I think is so important. At, at the risk of extending the analogy past its breaking point, like how many times at a family dinner would you set a table for fewer seats and the amount of number of guests that you have coming even if there is going to be a a kids table set up there's 10 kids coming do you set it for six 
and you set it for five adults when there's going to be 40 adults or 20 adults. Uh, and I, I, I think most people would instinctively go, no, that's just rude. It's just horrible. You, you don't, you don't invite 40 people and then set the table for five. Uh, and yet when that comes, when those same observations are raised, you know, when CRT makes those same observations about the structural inequalities that have been done in our, in our society, which is effectively setting the table for five when, it, when there are 40 coming, it's seen as this uh, completely transgressive thing in the opposite direction. It's not transgressive that you're setting the table for, for five. It's transgressive that someone's pointing out how rude you are. Uh, and it strikes me quite often when we come to this from the framework of hospitality, how many of those sort of questions are diffused rather than we've come to this from a framework of theology or a framework of academic study or a framework of uh, interpretation of the Bible and things like that. The idea of uh, hospitality makes me think about something I like to call intellectual hospitality, like the idea that or a kind of posture of being able to entertain ideas. And I think one of the things that I hope uh, people are able to entertain uh, through this series is the possibility, <laughs> the possibility that people have different experiences than you and that people approach the text differently than you. Uh, and, um, and I think this really comes to a head in our current situation politically with critical race theory and really just the kind of inability of a lot of people to entertain that possibility that people have different experiences than you. Uh, and that's a real kind of sad, frustrating thing. I hope uh, I hope this series has been helpful uh, towards that end. But yeah, it's just a real frustration. Yeah, it's great that you mentioned that, John. And um, that just brings to mind, you know, the episode that we had on um, CRT with uh, Dr. Nathan Cartagena, Dr. Jeff Leo, and Dr. Robert Chamu Romero, and how um, what I really loved in that episode was them sharing um, some of their own personal journeys and why they're interested in this work and why they're passionate about it. Um, and yeah, going back to the table analogy, it's like when you share a meal together, you know, it's not just this intellectual conversation, you know, people share their own stories and how important those stories are um, when we're doing this theological work, especially when we're looking at the particularities, um, just because yeah, it brings a wholeness um, to the intellectual work so that it's not just um, divided from actual life. You know, um, you're talking about how um, we need to be aware that, you know, people's lived experiences, they're different. They're different from ours. And um, to be able to listen to other people's lived experiences is so important to be able to um, build bridges and um, have compassion and to have, you know, the kind of unity that Jesus wants, like his believers to have. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, in our culture today, we miss that. We miss um, listening to other people's stories. Grace, I think stemming on, on from that table analogy, I think one thing too is like when you are in spaces where someone brings something new to the table that is also edible and good from their perspective, uh, how we should be respectful at the table, even if there are elements that aren't digestible to us, right? 
Um, and to, to ask ourselves, is it that it's not digestible or if it's just preferentially not what I like? And that does not mean that the meal that's brought is inherently bad, right? And I think that, that context of humility, I think, needs to be at any table that we are willing to invite guests to. So if we invite a guest with no parameters of what they can bring other than their full selves into that space, well, then we, we have opened ourselves up to receive what they bring. And if, if we don't want to receive that, we, we make that very clear. Um, but then we have to ask our conscience, why do we not want to receive that? Because I prefer not to have that or actually it's not good for me. Um, and I think as, as we think about the, the doctrinal discourse, there are elements doctrinally, yes, that we must take positions upon, but we must not fuse doctrine with culture, right? And a lot of the majority arguments actually have a dichotomous lens to them because they're likely sometimes taking a majority view and putting that as doctrinal instead of saying this is a cultural perspective as we seek to faithfully understand the crux of our faith and be faithful to doctrine. And so I think we have to be patient with one another as, as we're dialoguing through these these uh, moments. And when I, when I think of CRT, when you bring CRT in, I think we have to remember that talking about a theory does not mean that we are um, trying to be biblically unfaithful. We presume suspicion before we presume hopefulness in the person who's dialoguing in that space. Uh, and I think we have to see ourselves sitting at the table dialoguing first, um, tasting is not accepting, <laughs> um, and even looking is not accepting. Uh, and so being able to say like, what did you bring? How does that taste? Is it actually healthy for me? Versus saying, I don't like how that looks, therefore it's unhealthy, get that off my table. Um, and I think as we do that more, and I, I have much hope through even the dialogues that we've had throughout this series. As we do that more, um, I think we, we give more parameter to say we are biblically faithful Christians who are seeking to understand how do we, uh, how do we actually biblically inform these constructs that are being talked about in the world, um, very much in the way that the, the formation of the history of the church has responded. Uh, you know, I, I think how much we forget how much the Reformation was rooted in the cultural cruxes of its day and responding to that. Um, we, we, we tend to forget that. And so why, why wouldn't that be an element that we need to also respond to now? Um, and I think the power of the church in our theological um, uh, framing will exhibit more of that kind of kindling that happened in the Reformation with its challenges, albeit, um, and, and also with its goods. Um, so we brought something to the table 500 years ago, at least in the Protestant world, we say, but yet we continue now to say, don't bring this to the table, don't bring this to the table, don't bring this to the table um, for fear of like, if it's going to ruin the dinner. And, and I'm saying like, let's dialogue about this first. Let's have humility first. Um, and let's be, I think, richly mindful that someone else can have uh, deep commitment to the faith and still explore areas um, with an earnestness to try to have more of a K 
kingdom mindedness towards how we view race, culture, and theology. Um, and I think we've done a great job of being able to sit with our guests and really process through that with them and hopefully be an example um, to others who are, you know, rightfully struggling with new perspectives, um, just as I think many of us here uh, have and will continue um, to have uh, as we move forward in these conversations. Yeah, and I think one of the things is that it's not just a conversation that happens in a single direction. Your example, the Reformation in influence that it had from culture, from political impetus, and um, even from the poor, poor examples of what was happening in Rome, and even as minor things such as Rome turning into a swamp and having plagues and malaria, uh, all of those sort of things influenced the Reformation at, at that time. But also the Reformation spawned a, a great rethinking within the Catholic Church in, in of itself. Uh, you had the Council of Trent, if, you had the Council of Trent stemming from uh, the Reformation and uh, really in response to it. And so I think sometimes people get, get afraid that it, that this is going to be, this is a, a point at which uh, the house of cards falls apart. If you like it, if, if this is to take the other thing that I associate with large dinners, uh, which is games of Jenga, you know, that one person is going to pull out the last, the quintessential or the, the linchpin piece and the entire tower is going to fall over at, at a, at a dinner table at a, around a table at a celebratory event what do you do when that happens well everyone gets together stacks all the pieces back and starts again you've got to figure out how to you know build that tower high without pulling out that last piece and i think part of this is this invitation to come back time and time again to the table to the the conversation to the discourse that's happening uh, rather than to, to use the other game analogy, which is often Monopoly, uh, where someone grabs the, the board, flips it up in the air and, th- and storms out of the room. And I think both, we see both of those happening on a regular basis th- theologically in the, at the theological dinner table. Um, and I think we need to be encouraging. I, I, I agree with you, Daniel. I think it's been really encouraging having these conversations uh, because it, it has been a life-giving event for being able to encourage people to come to the table and to stay at the table uh, continuing to dialogue, even when uh, people poke their Jenga tower and it falls over. One of the other things that I, I really appreciate with uh, Grace, with you talking about the narrative and discourse that happens at the table, is in that nature of, of how that happens in a relational context. Uh, and uh, one of the things I worry about is that in COVID, and, and perhaps this is why some of these conversations have become so vitriolic during COVID, is that everyone's been so isolated. Everyone is, is at home on their own. Uh, all communications mediated through the computer, uh, mediated uh, to people who they can't see, they can't touch, can't figure out their facial expressions, have no way of really knowing uh, what's happening. There's no instantaneous dialogue. Words are being thrown out into the the ether. I wonder if part of that is because uh, we are de-skilling ourselves in being able to have good conversations. because all of our conversations are so heavily mediated by communications platforms, by um, social media, by um, even video telecommunications is a fairly artificial uh, turn-taking conversation. You know, one person has to mute themselves and one other person has to unmute themselves. But I wonder, I wonder what this will do in the long term for our churches, for yeah. our discourse within theology. 
Totally. One of the things that I've been um, researching a lot recently is um, tech addiction and screen addiction and, and, and how uh, media multitasking has uh, impacted us. And one of the things that I've, I've read um, in the literature is that as a result of media multitasking, one of the things that we lose in that process is empathy. And yes, the, the, the mode of communication, like you're mentioning the siloing and then the social media and the zooming and all of that, um, that already does not uh, support good discourse when we're not like face to face with somebody, you know, it's kind of like when you're like driving, you can get really mad at that, like red Honda, but like, if you've got a shopping cart and you're in a grocery store, you're not going to scream at the lady who, you know, <laughs> pulls out in front of you uh, in the aisle, right? You're <laughs> because you can see their face, you know, and it's totally different. Right. And so you think about like, that dynamic that I think obviously plays out in social media, but, but then, but then you factor in uh, what media multitasking does to our ability to empathize with people. And it's just a horrible situation. I think you're exactly right about how this past year has, has made it to where we need to relearn social engagement. Also thinking um, like because of our isolation, how um, we can like pick and choose who we engage with as well. Um, I think that's huge. Um, like a huge effect of COVID is that people are now, um, you know, they stay in their own like isolated bubbles of like who they agree with. And then it just becomes, you know, like that echo chamber. I think that Chris has talked about in previous episodes that they're only like hearing the people that they already agree with. Um, and so, yeah, even having um, conversations with people who are different or people who don't agree, uh, it's like even harder to have those conversations when people are just picking and choosing who they're having the conversations with and who they're listening to. And I think it's not just about picking and choosing who they're having the conversations with and who they're listening to, but also the, the topics of those conversations. One of the things that we're going to be moving on to on the podcast after this series is one on uh, apologetics and how we do apologetics in the world. And one of the things that strikes me is that apologetics is much easier to do when it's atomized, when you're only having to deal with one aspect, uh, say the resurrection or uh, is, does God exist or, uh, or, or the interaction of science and faith. But when you try and consider those individually, it, there are short, pithy test cases. Uh, there are ways that you can prove certain things or disprove certain things. Uh, but the complexity is often around the, them inter interaction with each other. Uh, and I think this is what, one of the, the dangers of the atomization of our theology, especially with regard to uh, ethnicity and identity and culture as they all intertwine together. I was thinking about David, the episode that we interviewed David Harrell on religious religion, race, and whiteness. The framework that he has of both ethnicity and identity in the ancient world, and thinking about, well, this is such a complex intertwining of religious identity, um, various different cultic forms of worship, um, various different. Uh, ethnic forms in different areas, the same religious identity might be expressed differently in say Ephesus versus in Jerusalem. Um, and so that there is this, 
exceedingly complex cultural milieu and religious milieu, which uh, form come together to form the the fabric of society and the fabric of the discourse. Um, but if we're only trying to pull one thread out, uh, it becomes a, a rather lops, lopsided or disjointed discourse. I think to go back with to what Daniel was saying earlier is um, how these conversations, um, there's like a hopeful part of this, like the fact that we're having these conversations. And um, it just reminds me of our conversation with um, Dr. Walter Augustine um, on the reflections um, after a year after um, George Floyd Memorial and how, uh, yeah, he was just so hopeful in um, the way that he was thinking about how these conversations are actually happening at this point in time. Um, and even though that there's so much more work that needs to be done in this area, um, that there has been a progress that has um, been made. And I think something that um, like I take from you know our guest is also, yeah, the models that they've provided um, and how they are doing the work. Um, yeah, I think just thinking about um, our episodes with um, Dr. Matthew Kim and Dr. Daniel Wong and um, Dr. Jeanette Her Oak and how um, they are models of Asian American or Asian North American scholars um, and preachers, like how they all have a heart you know, for the church um, and that these conversations that they're having um, in like Asian North American biblical interpretation um, and preaching, like how it, it's not just um, like, yeah, that academic exercise, but their passion is really um, for the church and to um, encourage seeing the, the bride of Christ grow um, and learn through all of these things. I think that was really encouraging for me. I think too, as, as I think about um, some of the conversations, I would say even, even in our earnestness to discuss the diversity of our theological discourse, sometimes we are so locked within our own cultural perspective because, because so many people of color in terms of the theological framework are on the margins that we're giving so much of our time to represent our own cultural background um, that we also need to, to lean in and learn from one another. Um, even though we, we fondly appreciate that, we, we just sometimes don't have the space. And so even as I think about um, Northern Hernandez being, being on, our, um, on our podcast and sharing about Latin American theology, it just enlightened me even more so to how much humanity is threaded together and sometimes we can fail to remember that because we're so consumed in our our own spaces. And I think, you know, to understand one space is not to be to the exclusion of another. Um, and I think that the good thing about uh, what, what I learned and gleaned from Norland's uh, time with us was that there's so much of a, a desire to actually live in community that I think is ingrained in the psyche of, of, of human beings, right? That, that God truly desires us to live in community. Um, but the, it is marred by so many elements of our sinful patterns, whether those are structural, political, uh, religious, political, and even Northern brings that up. And yet how I think Latin American theology positions itself in a communal framework that transcends 
some of the institutional challenges that come um, their way. I think he, he, as he was thinking, uh, as he was processing through a, a Nicaraguan uh, challenge of some of the political uh, areas that he, he mentioned, how much fervor uh, you see in the development of theology um, that comes alongside some of the challenges that are happening in his own home country uh, and really uh, almost circumvents that in a way that brings more, uh, I think, facilitative joy uh, to how the church thrives uh, in, in the spaces that he, he particularly was from. And then also how that offshoots off to a more uh, global understanding of how Latin Americans uh, view theology uh, in the context of the church. Uh, and so I, I was appreciative of that. And, and it helped me to see, as, as we've been having all these dialogues, how much we desire to be in community in a way that reflects our theological convictions uh, and how we have to do uh, incredible work um, to really see beyond um, our own particular uh, space uh, and also see the history that's tied uh, to how we uh, have been shaped theologically in very glorious ways. Um, and uh, I think as we, if we, as we navigated through uh, particularly Latin American theology, I've seen how much of this deep communal effort uh, is placed in that uh, positioning of, of theology. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Daniel. And that also reminds me of our episode with um, Dr. Octavio Escada and just how, um, yeah, he was mentioning that whole communal aspect of doing theology, um, that it's not just um, this individual isolated work. Um, they like especially in Latin American theology, they do it in, in conjunto. So um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but um, yeah, how uh, I love that communal aspect and um, seeing how they really value, you know, love for neighbor and love for others and um, love for those who are poor and marginalized and how that motivates their theological work as well. Um, I think just seeing them um, talk about that um, is so powerful and there's so much we can learn from, um, especially in the West, which tends to be much more individualistic. Um, and so I think there's so much richness to glean, yeah, from other cultures and um, from the way that people are doing theology, like global theology all over the world and how um, the Western church needs to be more open um, to those other perspectives. And, and this communal emphasis that Grace and Daniel, you've brought out, brings us back to the table. You know, I know for myself, I have a lot more fun enjoying a meal when I'm eating it with others. I'm actually more likely to cook uh, more healthy and, and better uh, as well when, I, when I'm cooking for others or with others. But yes, this idea of community and, and, and the table analogy uh, once more, I think, is uh, just really, really beautiful. Th thank you all for, for recapping this today and, and um, thinking about this wonderful series. I know we're all really proud of this series and, and excited about the next one uh, with apologetics, but uh, Daniel, Grace, and Chris, thank you all for, for joining today. Thanks, John. It's been a good conversation. Thanks, John, um, for this conversation. And thanks, Daniel, for that table analogy. We're going to like just use it all the time now. <laughs> I'm glad that I was able to contribute in that way. Thank you all. I appreciated hearing hearing all, all your voices uh, in this space.